I'm Julie Reynolds-Martinez, and this is Gray Area, a show about justice and redemption. Back in 1992, my then-husband and I ran a Latino art gallery in Santa Cruz, California. We had this brightly colored, three-foot-tall plaster statue of the Virgin of Guadalupe, the patron saint of Mexico. I stuck it in a large wooden box painted with a desert backdrop. As a kitschy piece of art, it stood out among the ceramics, glassware, and framed prints on display. So day after day, this guy would come into the gallery and look at the Virgin, and he kept promising he'd buy it. I didn't really believe him, but every time he came in to stare at the statue, we'd talk a little more. His name was Reynaldo, and he wanted to give the Virgin to his mother, Sara. He said he was trying to get in touch with his Mexican roots. He'd grown up in Silicon Valley, and although he picked fruit in that valley's orchards as a kid, he was now a high-tech graphic designer who spoke very little Spanish and knew almost nothing about his heritage. The weird thing was, Ronaldo was turning to me to help him get in touch with his Mexicanness, me, the white girl from Philadelphia. Granted, I at least spoke Spanish. I was married to a man from Guerrero, Mexico, and I'd lived and traveled in that country for many years. We soon found out we shared a passion for exploring culture, history, and stories, and Reynaldo and I have been pals ever since. He eventually bought that virgin and gave it to his mom, who loved it. 26 years later, he calls to tell me he's had a vivid dream about his long-estranged half-brother, Roy Miranda, who died decades ago. The dream made Ronaldo decide to try to find out why their lives ended up so starkly different. I jumped in to join the search. What we learned on this journey was more than just the shocking truth about Roy. It would uncover a connection to some legendary criminals and folk heroes and dig deeply into Native American history. For many Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, the ties to their indigenous roots were severed centuries ago. But as we discovered in the case of Reynaldo, and especially Roy, that rupture was not so far in the past. The traumas and struggles remain alive in the present, from massacres and enslavement to lynchings, extermination, and displacement. For Reynaldo, what started as a search for insight about his brother turned into a journey that spanned cultures, nations, and centuries. A journey of discovery about the ongoing struggle for a sense of place and self in the American West. This is Reynaldo in Yakiland. As a kid, I um, was very curious about our ancestry and where we came from, what state, what kind of people we were. But each time I asked my mother about our history as a family, our relatives, anything in the past, she would get very upset and angry with me. Why are you asking those questions? You don't need to know. Just, it happened, move on, kind of attitude. She made it real clear that she did not want to talk about it, and I had no business asking her questions about it. Growing up, I um, wanted to fit in. That was basically why I didn't want to speak Spanish. That's why I didn't make the effort to learn Spanish. And it's still <laughs> still hard for me to speak Spanish. But basically, I just wanted to fit in. And most of the friends I had were white. Mom spoke in Spanish, and I could understand her. And the way we would work, <laughs> she would speak to me in Spanish, and I would answer her in English, and she knew just enough English to understand. 
I had a sense that we were some sort of indigenous people because I was aware enough that about people like us, you know. I knew that a Mexican is, is part Spanish and part indigenous native from Mexico. So I, I knew that. So I knew that we were part Indian or however way you want to say that. I just didn't know what kind. It's been almost two decades since Rinaldo's mother died, but the questions about his family's heritage continue to nag him. And now those questions are suddenly tangled up with the story of his mysterious brother. Well, I came down with bladder cancer, and that's why I started going to an acupuncturist. So I'm alone in the room for about almost an hour, and my mind drifts. One of the things that happened, I started thinking about my half-brother Roy, who uh, was not a real nice guy. He was a criminal, and I basically, I wrote him off when I was about 25, 28 years old because he just was a terrible person. He hurt people, he stole from people, and so I wrote him off. I didn't want to have anything to do with him. Then I had a dream, and in my dream, again, it came all back to me how he mistreated his kids, his wife, and it was terrible what he did to them. Physically abused them, verbally abused them, and it angered me. But at the same time, I had this sort of feeling of empathy for him and, and curiosity. You know, he, he did what he did, and there was no taking that back. But at the same time, I wanted to know why he did what he did. What was driving him? Why did he become the person he became? How did all this happen? And so my first thought was just to talk to the people who knew him best. Of course, that would be his wife and his kids. And that's what started the journey to visit them in Arizona. As we set out to learn the truth about Roy, this is all we know for sure. Roy was 15 years older than Rinaldo, and he was an adolescent when their mother married the man who would become Rinaldo's father. Roy and his stepfather did not get along, and Roy ran away when he was 13, two years before Rinaldo was born. While still a juvenile, Roy was arrested for a minor crime, but because he'd lied about his age, he was put into an adult prison. His family thinks he was probably the victim of abuse there. Roy went on to father nine children with two women. He and his second wife and kids moved constantly across the West, and he was in and out of prison for counterfeiting, petty theft, and forging checks. Then there were the rumors that he had something to do with the disappearance of his girlfriend Jenny, that they'd gone on a trip to the desert and she never returned. Roy died in prison in 1993, and the brothers hadn't spoken for years. But Reynaldo's earliest memories of his brother were all music and fun. At family gatherings, Roy would whip out a guitar and play Gemma, the classic Mexican love song, and all the cousins would come running to sing along. I idolized him. I thought he was a very cool guy, you know. He, he was the first guy I ever met that was in a, dressed in a tuxedo in the afternoon. I mean, man, that was cool. He re related to me in a way no other adults did at that time. The other adults were like 
very responsible, employed people who were bringing up their families. And Roy was just the opposite. He was um, kind of like the devil-may-care kind of character. And I remember when things started changing for me was when he was in a high-speed chase with the Sunnyvale police. He was at a bar with his girlfriend, and he killed some guy in the bar, and he jumped in the car and took off down El Camino in Sunnyvale. They caught him and and, and put him in jail, but I remember reading the newspaper the next day about the whole episode, and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. (laughs) It's like, he's a gangster. Whoa, you know? So I still idolized him, but at the same time, it started becoming clear that he what he truly was like. The hunt for Roy's story takes us to Arizona in late October. We arrive just before the Days of the Dead, the first two days in November, when Mexicans welcome the spirits of their departed loved ones as they come back and visit. Or I could take it to the grandma. You know what I mean, to your grandma, to Grandma Juliana? Let me see, Eduardo, what color do you want for him? Ronaldo's cousin Mercy becomes our guide through this journey, and she brings us to the cemetery in the town of Mesa. This is where Ronaldo and Roy's mother Sara and other members of the family are buried. We can feel the presence of the ancestors as grave sites are tidied and decorated in preparation for the days of the dead. Mercy has brought a basket of vases and flowers to place by the family graves. But when we find Sara's headstone, we're surprised to find fresh lilies and roses already there. And they're yellow, her favorite color. Somebody was here. Somebody was just here. Wow, I wonder who. I don't know. Look at, they know she liked yellow. Mm-hmm. Oh, that looks so beautiful. We're off to see Helen, Roy's widow. Like many Latinas, she has an English and Spanish version of her name, so she goes by both Helen and Elena. She lives in a modest house in Mesa. Kids and relatives seem to roll through like a river, and sitting down for a quiet conversation is a challenge. Elena tells us how she and Roy met over a cup of coffee while they both worked at a celery packing plant in Southern California. Roy immediately impressed her with his hard work and drive, and before long, they eloped. We pressed her for details, but she seemed to remember the good things about him better than the bad. So, at what point did Roy start, you know, doing stuff uh, illegally and getting in trouble for it? What? At, at what point did Roy start getting in trouble? I think he is getting in trouble right before I met Do you think that's why you had to move so often? I think so and leave everything behind, just go. Mm-hmm. But then he met a woman that followed his steps more than I did. Elena tells us that woman was Roy's longtime partner in crime, Jenny Leon, who abruptly vanished years ago. We'll hear more about her later. What kind of things did he do? Oh, just bad checks. <laughs> nothing, nothing real dangerous. <laughs> no, no bank robberies or nothing. No. But I do remember what happened at the bar in Sunnyvale, I think it was. It was in the newspaper that he shot somebody and he got into the white Cadillac you guys had then. And he was racing down El Camino and 
Sunnyvale Mountain View? Could be. Like I said, there's a, a lot of blanks, but I didn't see any of it till after it was all after it was all done. Yeah. yeah. So, like I said, you know, a lot of things, a lot of empty spots in there. He would keep that from you. But we never really talked, you know. So, and he would get other women to help. Or to be with him, so to do the work that he needed, yeah, he wanted to get done. <laughs> yeah, to him it was work. He said. Yeah. <laughs> Were you guys together when he died? Yes. Yeah. You miss him? Yeah. Ten <laughs> years. It's got. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It sounds like he was a lot of fun. Oh, no. <laughs> no? No? No, I don't think so. I, I picture him the life of the party. Well, <laughs> yes and no. He was the life of the party, yes. Was, but uh, we had our ups and downs. And, mm -hmm. you know, we had good, we had bad. We had it all, I guess. <laughs> anyway, yeah, at all in the past. <laughs> mm -hmm. But oh, who's cooking? <laughs> who snuck up behind? No, nobody was there. Who's got the mic going? Roy the king. <laughs> Did she just say Roy came here? Well, after all, the days of the dead are upon us. Maybe Roy just got here early to tell his side of the story. We're about to leave Elena's when the Mirandas show up, one of Roy's daughters and her children. Ronaldo's feeling frustrated. Elena seems pretty practiced at keeping mom. But then one of his nieces says she believes the Mirandas, Roy's father's family, are related to Ernesto Miranda. She says her son even looks like the guy. You might not have heard of Ernesto Miranda, but you've probably heard of Ernesto Miranda. And you've almost certainly heard the result of the 1966 Supreme Court decision bearing his name. It profoundly changed the treatment of criminal suspects in this country, the Miranda rights. We take them for granted now, but they were extremely controversial at the time. Reynaldo and I decide to see what we can find online. You have the right to remain silent. Miranda versus Arizona. What is that? Ernesto Miranda is dead. He was a kidnapper and a rapist. And he mattered because he gave his name to a Supreme Court decision that mattered a great deal. Here's a report from Carl Stern. Miranda was stabbed to death in an argument over less than $3 during a card game last night in a neighborhood bar in Phoenix, Arizona. He was 35 years old. The man who gave his name to a generation of controversy about the Supreme Court had been in trouble since he was 17, arrested 14 times for such things as auto theft, narcotics, armed robbery, rape, and kidnapping. He was last arrested two years ago on a gun charge, later dropped, and had been free ever since. The decision bearing Miranda's name was announced 10 years ago this month. 
One man was arrested last night for Miranda's stabbing, and immediately he was given the so-called Miranda warnings. Miranda, a rape and kidnapping suspect, had been held incommunicado by police until he confessed, the sort of thing the Supreme Court said would not have happened to someone rich enough to call for his lawyer. So the court laid down several rules, that a suspect must be told of his right to remain silent and to have a lawyer, free if need be. The suspect also should be told that what he says can be used against him. Wow. Wow. Wow, that's a... Fucking That's hey. a corrido. <laughs> yeah, it's a corrido. We need to do that. Bet there is one. Despite his violent criminal record, many in the Arizona Latino community hailed Miranda as a human rights hero. We weren't able to verify whether Ernesto and Roy were actually related. But both Miranda families came from Sonora, Mexico, and settled in Mesa, Arizona. Okay, I'm pause for a minute. Just pause for a minute. Just pause for a minute. Pausing. Okay, pausing your thinking and reading. <laughs> okay, um, all right. Why am I here? Kept on asking you that. I'm learning about this guy. Isn't this crazy? Isn't that crazy? And I'm learning about this guy at the same time thinking the family history I have is a violent one. Yeah. But I'm almost sure that a lot of families are like that. Mm-hmm. You go far enough in the past, it's yeah. violent. But this wasn't that far away in the past. I was fucking 15 years old when this was happening. Like Roy, Ernesto was born in Mesa, and he's buried in the same cemetery as Rinaldo and Roy's mother. Ernesto and Roy were both first arrested as teens and eventually did time in the same Arizona prison. Uh, what do you call it? A distant relative raped and beat this woman, and because of that, he did something good? Well, talk about conflicting emotions. We still don't have a clear sense of who Roy was, but we're about to get a sense of where he came from. Mercy brings us to the village of Guadalupe, south of Phoenix. The population here is mostly Native American, the Pascua Yaqui tribe. We're in another graveyard, this one far more modest than the one in Mesa. There's no grass, just dirt. Many of the graves here are marked with weather-beaten wooden crosses. Others are barely marked at all, a pile of stones, a small crumbling statue. It's Halloween, the day before El Dia de los Muertos, and the only person we see here is a woman cleaning graves. Did uh, Julie talk to you about Ernesto Miranda? No. Uh, you know about the Miranda rights? Yeah, right. Ernesto Miranda from Phoenix, yeah. yeah. Was he related? I think so. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't read him his rights. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I've never seen a picture of him. Google it. Yeah. Ernesto. He wasn't a good man. Right, right. Very bad guy. He was a bad guy, but yeah. he still had rights. In this silent graveyard, we begin to learn the stories that Elena wouldn't tell us. We stroll past the graves, and Mercy tells me that Roy's widow was no saint. That gentle elderly woman we just met committed crimes with Roy, and she did prison time too, for things like forgery and theft. Mercy even tells me that Roy and Elena would rob the cars of mourners attending funerals. I remember because I saw Lena on on TV 
It was an Arizona's most wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked. You saw a picture of him? No, of her. Of he her. always put her in the front. Whoa. Mercy says she brought us here to show Reynaldo his mother's ties to this community, to the indigenous people of the region, the Yaquis. We walk up the street to watch a ceremony and the Yaqui deer dance for the festival of San Judas, Saint Jude, the patron saint of impossible causes. The sun is setting, casting a glow on the Yaqui's small, simple church that sits next to the big fancy Catholic one. The participants will stay here all night, singing and dancing in prayer. A man with a stuffed deer head atop his own head is dancing on the balls of his bare feet shaking the cocoon rattles on his ankles as men beat water drums. The dancer moves like a deer. His eyes and head dart from side to side with the expression of prey watching for predators. Mercy says Ronaldo's mom used to attend the Yaqui church here every year. She tells us Sara was raised near the Yaqui River in Sonora. These are the first solid clues we have about her indigenous background. But let's back up a minute. To better understand the Yaqui perspective, I reached out to Valina Underwood and her mother, Consuelo. Consuelo lives in Silicon Valley, not far from where Ronaldo grew up. She's an incredible fiber artist who traces her own roots to the Huichol people of Mexico. Her husband and her daughter, Valina, are both enrolled members of the Pascua Yaqui tribe. Valina works with the tribe here in Arizona. Here's Valina. You know, the Yaquis, they're in the desert, and they controlled the whole Yaqui Basin, which is this vast part of Sonora, and then into the Arizona territories. So like you were saying about your friend and how his mom had this connection to Tucson, well, historically, Yaquis have been all the way from Phoenix all the way down to basically Sinaloa. The border was not created by them. The border came to them. The border confronted them and then said, okay, you pick. The Yaquis, who called themselves Yoeme, were only granted tribal status by the U.S. government in 1979. Since that time, they've lost their dual Mexican and U.S. citizenship, as well as land and water rights that were outlined in the original treaties but they have a 500-year-long history of defending their sovereignty that continues to this day. Valina says her father and grandfather are part of that history. My dad knew he was Yaqui. He knew the son of a full-blooded Yaqui, but through the diaspora, he was removed from his family. So where my grandfather's kin, who knows? Somewhere in Mexico, because he was the 13th child, and the, he was born two weeks after this huge massacre of Yaqui Indians called Masakola. And that means his family was on the run. And along the way, he gets picked up and put into Indian boarding school because just like they did here in the States with Indian boarding school, they had that in Mexico. Either they killed you or they re-educated you. Those are your choices. The Yaquis resisted and even started their own nation, the Yaqui Republic. They were the longest-lasting native group to wage war against Mexico's repression all the way until 1929, just five years before Roy was born. At the turn of the century, the Yaquis were specifically targeted by Mexican dictator Porfirio Diaz for, quote, extermination and deportation. According to scholars, the Yoeme became the most widely displaced native peoples of North America. 
To many, the Masakova massacre of 1900 in Guaymas, Sonora, was the most brutal of the entire struggle. It was a mass slaughter that led to the kidnapping and enslavement of more than a thousand Yaquis who were exiled into forced labor in southeastern Mexico and Central America. Basically, the Mexican army had the Yaquis trapped at the top of this mountain called Masacoa, and the choice was either to surrender and be enslaved, raped, murdered, or jump. So all of these women and children, they jumped. Because if you were caught, you were forced marched from Sonora to the Yucatan. Talk about a trail of tears. To work. To work. Sugar yeah. plantations. Yeah. And we met in Yaquiland, Doña Luisa, who survived the jump. That's Consuelo, Velina's mother. And she said when they left that it was a beautiful day in the Yaquiland, and it was back in the day when there was no poverty, there was flowers everywhere, the fields were growing and everything, and then all of a sudden they said, get in the cart, we're leaving. That's when they took off to Masacoa. While accounts vary, as many as 3,000 Yaquis faced more than 5,000 Mexican soldiers at the top of the Masokova Plateau. Some historians say that two-thirds of the Yaquis there were killed or enslaved in the battle that ensued. Many committed suicide by jumping off the cliff. And she said it was like flying. And she said that what broke her fall were the branches. And that when she hit the ground, a Yaqui warrior said, don't worry, I'll take care of you, and was immediately killed. So she was marched to the Yucatan, and it took her like 10 years to come back, because she escaped the plantation, and took her 10 years to come back to her homeland. And then when she came back, total destruction. But the thing was about her, smiling. She was in like a halo of light. And she was just, oh, it was like flying. Oh, it was a hard walk. Yeah, but it was so nice to come back. That's an amazing story. And then to see her as an 89, 90-year-old woman just glowing with light and no bitterness, no anger toward the Mexicans, no anger toward anybody, except how beautiful life was. Historians say that from 1902 to 1908, between 10 and 15,000 Yaquis were deported, roughly a third to a half of their population. Others escaped to the north. The little village of Guadalupe, where Mercy has brought us, was founded in 1900 by Yaquis fleeing their homeland in Sonora. It was named for the Virgin of Guadalupe, the same saint whose statue sparked my friendship with Rinaldo. The Virgin was special to Roy, too. A giant tattoo of her covered his chest, and he drew a picture of her for Rinaldo when he was a kid. Only after learning the Yaqui's history did I think to search for border crossing records. I found documents showing that Rinaldo's mother and her family came to Arizona in 1916 when many Yaquis fled north to escape the terrors. His mother, Sara, was only six years old. 18 years later, her first child, Roy, would grow up in the wake of this collective trauma. I mean, it's like 500 years of war. So that meant we were the children of refugees. The Yaquis in Mexico are still resisting. They are opposing a pipeline project, which is gaining attention as the Standing Rock of Mexico. 
In the course of this struggle for water rights in the Yaqui River, several Yaquis have been kidnapped and at least one killed. I ask Felina if it's been painful to learn about the violent treatment of her ancestors. What I really think it does, more than the trauma, more than anything else, is this sense of responsibility, mm. of how am I going to make the world a better, stronger place? How am I going to keep my culture, my religious beliefs, my soul alive? And I don't think you can, there's never any time and there's no purpose to whining and thinking about all the bad stuff. There's nothing. It's, it's too hard. Yeah, you would do nothing. You'd be paralyzed. I'm hoping Valina will tell me about the deer dance, but she politely says no. So the tricky thing, and this is, I'm not trying to be rude, but the tricky thing is the reason that the Yaki's culture and language and lifestyles have lived is because of the secrecy and the cautious containment of the knowledge to the outside world. So, yeah, there's lots of things I could tell you about it, but I really can't. You know, it would it would it wouldn't it wouldn't be right. You know what I mean? By the way, at the request of the Yaqui leaders we met in Arizona, there's no audio in this podcast from the ceremony in Guadalupe. The flute and drumming you hear were recorded and published with permission by a Yaqui group in Sonora who specifically wanted to share their culture more broadly. In Guadalupe, the men are still dancing in a small shed between the two churches. Families pull up folding chairs and blankets. They're going to pray and drum and dance all night. The sun sets and a procession enters the small Yaqui church. We're invited to stay, but Ronaldo wants to get back to Mesa. He's anxious to find the truth about his brother, and he's hoping to hear it from Roy's children. I don't want to leave, and I look back toward the church. There's a line that's sung often in the Yaqui deer dance, which in English goes, first you look, later you will find. And so we drive off into the night, hoping we will. When Ronaldo meets with Roy's daughters and other relatives to ask about their memories of him, the floodgates open. Out rush the stories of Roy's violent temper, a rage he often took out on the women in his life. Like I said, I'm just going to throw everything right, out there, yeah. good, bad, whatever. He was rough. Oh my goodness, he, he was, beat them horribly. He was rough. He beat them like this all the time. He was rough with him, really rough. Helen got beat up. There are times when he would get drunk that he could think, he could say and, and do things to us. Like, like I said, I never talked to him again. I never saw him. I remember him opening the trunk to one of the vehicles he had. And he lifted it up, and he had all these envelopes filled with money. But I remember, like, the kids got hand-me-downs. Really. So you have to stop and think, did he really love them? She told me that she had to take self-esteem classes, counseling. Oh, he put her through a lot. She didn't have a choice, I don't think. No, it I, was she, either that or death. But it was, she didn't fear her death. She feared that he would go after her loved one, her siblings. When her mom died, he didn't let her go to the funeral. But we were walking on Country Club at nighttime. And I may remember going to cross the road. And I saw this car coming. And it, it wasn't stopping. And I turned around and I looked at that's my dad. He had to have been coming out of the bar. And he didn't even know it was me. Oh, he would have ran me over. You want to believe that it's going to get better. Or that, you, think, or that you're able change. to change him. He's the one that got my brother Johnny hooked on heroin. 
now because he was always running from the law. We would have a, a whole different name. Our parents would have a different name. That was the way, that's how it was. And we mm -hmm. had to practice until we got it. He hit her on the head with a gun, split her head open. And I guess uh, one night he tried to rape her. Do any of you know whatever happened to Jenny? Helen told me that if ever there was a woman that Roy loved, it was Jenny. I remember him coming over with Jenny and the kids and Elena. Yeah. And they'd be well, like making out on the couch. She decided to leave <laughs> and Roy cried and cried. And you never and saw her again, no. Jenny? Nothing about a trip to the desert. We've learned just about all we can from Roy's family in Arizona, and it's time to head home. Back in California, Ronaldo is still processing the more painful moments of his family's past. I keep myself busy following the paper trail. At the Sunnyvale Public Library, I dig up the article Ronaldo read as a teenager about Roy's bar fight and arrest in Sunnyvale. Except the name he gave police wasn't Roy Miranda. It was Rogelio Murrieta. I called Rinaldo and find out that Roy claimed he was related to Joaquin Murrieta. He'd send his little sister Angie books about the infamous gold rush bandit and folk hero. Here in California, Murrieta is sometimes remembered as the Mexican Robin Hood, and today he's recognized in the modern stories of Zorro. By the time of the 1960s Chicano movement, Murrieta had become legendary around the world, an icon of indigenous resistance to colonial oppression. Murrieta was Roy's grandmother's maiden name, and he used the surname as his criminal alias. Through census and birth records, I was able to trace Roy's paternal grandmother, Concepcion Murrieta, to the same tiny village in Sonora where many of Joaquin Murrieta's descendants still live today. My guess, Roy and Joaquin were indeed related. Joaquin Murrieta was a young Mexican kid who came to California during the California Gold Rush, you know, back 1849, 1850, right in there. And um, what happened was there was a lot of racial and ethnic violence that was taking place as Mexicans and Anglos begin to clash in the West. And uh, Mexicans were driven out of the gold fields. And there was this one guy, Joaquin Murrieta, whose uh, uh, gold mining claim was purportedly jumped by Anglos, whose wife was raped and murdered. And he then goes on a trail of revenge and murder uh, you know, against the Anglo oppressors. That's documentary filmmaker John Valadez, producer of the 2016 film, The Head of Joaquin Murrieta. And um, eventually the governor of California, John Bigler, dispatches a group of cutthroats, professional bounty hunters called the California Rangers to hunt down this Joaquin Murrieta. And they return to Sacramento about a month later with a severed human head in a jar and they collect their reward money, 
and then they begin to tour throughout California to hotels, brothels, um, saloons, uh, displaying the head and charging people a dollar to see their trophy. And of course, this instills fear in the Mexican community and, and uh, the gold fields empty of Mexicans and they begin to form little communities all across California, what are today the Mexican-American barrios, East LA, the Mission District, Santa Barbara, that's how those communities formed. So Joaquin Murrieta is a really uh, fascinating uh, character in American history and to think that uh, that, uh, that, that a Mexican was decapitated and has been his head displayed throughout the West on the orders of the governor. I've never heard of the California Rangers. As a crime reporter, I've worked for years with special agents in our State Department of Justice police force. And now I've learned that the entire force evolved from the Rangers, a group formed specifically to hunt down Murrieta and other Mexicans. And along the way, uh, I learn about Joaquin Murrieta and I learn about the troubled history of Anglos and Mexicans in the West and I learn about the lynching of Mexican Americans um, in the West. 871 documented lynchings of Mexican Americans in 13 Western states in proportion to their numbers. Mexicans were lynched in the West as often as African Americans were lynched in the South. a painful, terrible, hidden history um, that has never been addressed or discussed and yet has important implications for the present, I would argue. A lot of the rumors about Murrieta's life have been hard to verify. But true or false, Murrieta's legend has resonated around the world. Was Joaquin a, a, a hero? I, I don't know. Was he a murderer? I, I don't know. Was he a good man made monstrous by circumstance? I, I don't know. So here's what Reynaldo and I found in the Sunnyvale Library about Rogelio Murrieta, also known as Roy Miranda. A high-speed police chase ended late last night with the arrest of a Sunnyvale man and a Torrance woman for a murder that apparently had no motive. Marcelo B. Puente, a 32-year-old Sunnyvale carpenter, was shot to death at 9.20 p.m. Shortly after midnight, Rogelio M. Murrieta, 31, and Jenny Leon, 39, were booked into Sunnyvale City Jail on charges of homicide. They were being held without bail for arraignment today. This is what happened. Puente and two friends, Raul Ramirez and Horacio Longoria, were at the bar in La Cabana when a man and woman entered and sat next to them. Ramirez left to go to the outside bathroom. As he returned, he heard shots and looked over a fence to see Puente double up and a man standing over him with a pistol. Ramirez, who lived with Puente, raced into the cafe and called the public safety department. Then he and Longorio, who lives in Santa Clara, ran outside to see the man and the woman backing a white Cadillac out of the rear driveway. The man aimed a pistol at them and said, Get back inside or I'll burn you too. Alerted by an all-points bulletin, a Santa Clara police officer spotted a white Cadillac and gave chase, firing once at the car when it raced away from him. 
Another police car joined the chase as county communications alerted officers from several jurisdictions. Murrieta and the Leon woman were found after they abandoned the Cadillac in the front yard of the Santa Clara home, and some 30 officers searched the area. A pistol was found in the woman's purse, and the search later turned up another pistol under the bush where Murrieta hid after leaving the car. There doesn't seem to be any motive, Penfold said this morning. Murrieta and the Leon woman did not know any of the other three men, he said, and there is no evidence of an argument at the bar. Funeral arrangements for Puente are pending. First reports said he was shot once in the side and once through the heart with a 22 caliber pistol. Wow. Man. Yeah, I knew that Roy had a temper, and his eldest daughter was telling me that it wouldn't take much of anything to get him started. Mm -hmm. A look, a comment, anything would get him really, really angry really, really quick. The same year Roy and Jenny awaited trial, Ernesto Miranda's appeal was picked up by the U.S. Supreme Court. The newspaper said Roy and Jenny both pled guilty to manslaughter, and it appears Roy served less than 10 years for taking the life of Marcelo Puente. Now you come to me with a story that I already knew about, that I read about when I was 16 years old, or 17, I don't know. And yeah, sure, back then I, I read the story, so I knew who, who the victim was, because I read it. I just didn't, I just forgot it, right? It went from my memory until you brought it up again. I go, yeah, now I remember. That was him. That was a real person that he killed for a slight. Who knows what it was? Yeah. I mean, who? Yeah. Apparently he was unarmed. We don't know for sure, but apparently he was. Even still, it doesn't mean you should be, you should kill him. Yeah. I mean, he deliberately killed him. He didn't just shoot him once, shot him three times. Fuck's sake, man. Looking back at the life of Reynaldo's brother, Rogelio Murrieta, Roy Miranda, it's not hard to imagine that from an early age, Roy found others to blame for his actions. Yeah, yeah, he, he had some tough breaks, old Roy but he was an intelligent individual and he could have risen above it, but he chose not to. And that also takes intelligence to choose for him. He was smart, smart guy. Like Joaquin Murrieta before him and Ernesto Miranda after him, Roy was not always a sympathetic character. But as we learn more about these men, it becomes clear their lives were shaped and informed by generations of shared trauma. Learning this history is helping Ronaldo understand his mother's reaction to his questions about their past. And I can see that if her parents were telling her, don't even talk about it to anybody, mm -hmm. that as she grew up and became an adult, she just kind of just had closed that door on that subject and said, no more, I don't want to talk about it. I can see that. Renaldo and I are sitting down in California with Angie Miranda, Roy's sister and Renaldo's half-sister. Angie shared the same father as Roy and remained close to her older brother throughout his life. For me, my memories of my brother are fairly good compared to everybody else's. I truly love him. 
and I know that he loved me. He protected me as much as he could when he was around. He never harmed me in any way. I know that he did some horrible things and I've heard tales, but I've never seen them. I've never seen him fight. We were at the same part where he killed that man, but we were there, I think it was like the week before it happened, with Jenny and Roy. He used to go there all the time. And the next weekend is when it happened. But I didn't know about it until I was sitting watching TV and the news came on, there's this picture and I go, oh my God. I didn't feel sad for the person. I felt more concerned about what was gonna happen to my brother. Were they gonna put him in the electric chair? Were they gonna put him in prison for life? Or... And then the second thought was, oh my God, what am I gonna do with the kids? That's five more kids. Here's this guy you looked up to, took care of you and who you loved. And when he started doing, or you became aware of bad things he was doing. What, what did that feel like for you? Um, I was sad that somebody so nice and so attentive to me could be so cruel to other people. And then the other part of me, the childish part of me, would say, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Everybody's jealous because he loves me, <laughs> you know? You were special. But, yeah. <laughs> Nobody else thought I was, but he did. So we were trying to buy a house, and we needed a down payment. A down payment was only $500. Right now I could say only then it was a lot. <laughs> yeah. So he gave me the $500. He gave it to me. He goes, here, so you can buy your house. And you did? Yeah. The first house we bought, thanks to him. Maybe because he knew that I would always take the kids. Because when I went to pick them up in Missouri, I brought the kids back and they stayed with me the whole time they were in jail. So not only was he looking out for me, I think he was in a way looking out for the children because he knew that I would always be there for them. I have to ask her about the rumors, the ones involving a trip with Jenny to the desert. Did you ever hear stories or rumors that um, that Roy killed Jenny? I never heard it, but I suspected that it happened. I don't know. I just get these feelings sometimes. And when Jenny didn't come back with them from Mexico, that was very odd. And I asked, and Elena said, you should talk to your brother. But I never did. I don't think I wanted to know. But I, I think I knew, spiritually, I think I knew that that's what happened. But I think he just shot her, because he always carried a gun, always. Why, why do you think he did it? He was probably drugged up and upset. Spur of the moment? Yeah. Anger? Yeah. Because he was, because the older he got and the more drugs he did, the worse he got.
I'm not sure we'll ever know if Roy killed Jenny, the woman he supposedly loved the most. Other relatives told us Jenny simply quit the criminal life and walked away from Roy after getting caught stealing one last time, and that she broke his heart when she left. I had no luck when I tried to track her down. Did you visit him in Arizona? Yeah. Yeah? Yes, he called me up on my birthday, and I was very surprised that he called me because he was in prison. And he said, he goes, I remember 50 years ago, this little baby was crying, and she was very dark, and she had black curly hair, and nobody wanted her. But I wanted you. You were my baby. And told him that I would go and see him. He goes, yeah, I figured you would. You're the only one that would travel to see me in prison. Because I did. So I told my mom, and then Tia Luisa wanted to go. So the three of us went to see him. Angie says that in happier times, Roy and his Tia Luisa would sing and drink together and sometimes have conversations in the Yaqui language. And he had lymphoma and they did surgery and I went and I hugged him. And then he goes, you know I'm gonna die. I go, yeah, I know. He goes, I'm happy you're here. And sure enough, he died right after that. Elena couldn't visit Roy in prison before he died because at the time, she was also locked up. But when it came time to scatter Roy's ashes, Elena, Angie, and Sara found a spot in the hills somewhere between Guadalupe and Tucson, in the heart of what was once Yaqui land. After, after everything you know, I don't know, if you, if you could talk to him today, what would you say to him? I love you. Despite everything. Oh God, I love him very much. Whatever he did, I look at it as a karmic thing. I look at it as like a payback for whatever it was, or he's going to pay back when he comes around again. But I'm a firm believer in afterlife, and I'm a firm believer in reincarnation. So for me, it's very easy to say, I love you. You did what you were here to do, or maybe you overdid it. But nonetheless, it's done. I don't know if I would feel that same way if he did anything to my children. but I can honestly say that I still love him very much. Mm. He knew, because like I said, I was there and I hugged him and I was massaging his shoulders. I kissed him in his head where the stitches were. Yeah, he, he knew it was me. No matter what, he's my brother and I loved him. I still love him and I loved him. I love him and nothing can change that. That's, that's true love. That's a feeling that you have when people really bond and they care 
Before he started this quest, Rinaldo never knew his mother and older brother had any ties to the Yaqui culture and community, and he never knew the history and context of their family's exile to Arizona. Having learned all this, I wonder if Rinaldo's feelings about Roy have changed. Roy caused a lot of trauma. A lot of pain. In your family. Right. To people you love and care about, you know. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like you can forgive him? Forgive him? Well, that's part of what I guess I'm trying to do here is that, you know, this whole process of me waking up one morning from a dream thinking, wow, why was he like that? And, you know, yeah, I was, you know, when I, when I quit somebody, when I say, okay, I'm done. They're no longer in my life. I'm done. I never look back. I just move forward. And that's what I did with him. Except after this dream. I actually went back and I said, I want to understand more about this guy. And in the process of learning more about him, it has actually created a little bit more pain than I was expecting. We're all kind of like the, the walking wounded, you know? Um, and people uh, in general try to fill that emptiness. We're all kind of empty. And um, they try to fill that emptiness by sex, drugs, alcohol, working hard and not doing anything else but working hard or just not working at all and just hanging out. So they, that's what they try to do to fill that hole within us. And the, the, the lesson I learned was no one can fill that hole except yourself. You just got to realize you have it, accept it, and then do what needs to be done to fill it yourself, not depend on anybody else, you know. And so what I was trying to do was, you know, drugs and alcohol and sex, of course, but uh, also um, I would blame the world for my situation. If it wasn't for so-and-so, I would have a better job. If it wasn't for the prejudices and the uh, discrimination that I got as a kid, I, I would have more educational access, eligibility, blah, blah, blah. And they're all excuses, you know? Sure, there's some grain of truth to that, but most of it were, were excuses. That's what I learned, and that's why I feel, that's what made me different, Okay. because yeah, I knew that. I knew that. I could, I knew, basically, I knew I couldn't blame anybody else for my situation except me. Is that my question about forgiveness? Ah, forgiveness. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever forgive him. I can, can you, can you not forgive somebody and still feel empathy? I don't know. Can I? I don't know. If Roy were to return to us, like so many ancestors on the days of the dead, I wonder if he would listen to his family's stories of the pain he unleashed upon them. And when it was his turn to speak, would Roy tell us why he killed a young carpenter in Sunnyvale? Would he speak to us in Yaqui? Would he reveal the untold stories of the family's flight from Mexico, of their terror and displacement from the land of their ancestors? Would he tell us what happened to Jenny, 
Maybe he would say his crimes and his violence were justified. Maybe he would ask for forgiveness. Or maybe, dressed in his tuxedo, he'd pull out a guitar and lead us through a few lines from Hema, always trying to be the life of the party. Piedra preciosa, como divina joya, valiosa de verdad. Yo, when people find out my last name's Miranda, first thing they want to ask is, any relation to the Miranda Rights guy? Well, as a matter of fact, I am. January 31st of the year 76, the world lost a legend, now one of his kids. Man who was strong both mentally and physically, people think they know, but they don't know what it is to be fighting for self-rights with self-doubt. Locked up in a cell with no one to help out, and sometimes the road to success can be a violent haul. Can make a personal thing by drinking Tylenol. Then you got folks happy so they smiling tall. Others crying for help, but with a silent call. But that's life, every step is just a little game. I was named after you, check out my middle name. When my grandfather Ruben told me all about everything you try to do, but nobody will hear you out. It made me realize that you were a visionary who got locked up and didn't find prison scary. But hey, everything happens for a reason. Now your nephew's rapping. Plus, he's also speaking out to the world and letting them know that his uncle Ernesto is a legend for show who was lost in the universe and wanted exception. Stuck inside a dream far, far from inception. Gotta thank John J. Flynn for fighting for your case and making a great win. Cause due to that, you made history, uncle. Now you're up in heaven, no more misery jungle. Racial profiling still exists on a daily, but you gave us rights, so it's not too crazy. Wish I could've known you, let alone met you. Could've showed you different ways for you to get through problems. At least for a while, that is. Maybe a grown man, but it's a child that lives in my mind. I wanna rewind. So we can go back in time to the night of your death with no joker's name You would've never ever played that damn poker game You would've swallowed your pride, went to Benny's wedding Cause he loved you, but back then you were forgetting what it felt like to be loved Like what is it? Did mad time and he never came to visit So man, I really can't blame you Cause honestly I would've done the same thing too Yeah, no hugs allowed, but now you have to look it down from above the clouds So anytime I feel bad, I stare up Wishing you could chill and give me a haircut Cause that's something that you learned in prison They might have took your freedom But they never ever burned your vision Yeah, but this is our story Miranda, goddammit, letting my heart pour See, so all them days of being strangled are over Fear nothing cause I got an angel on my shoulder Rest in peace, Uncle Ernie Yeah Special thanks to Mr. Miranda for the song you just heard, Miranda's Rights. And thanks to KRWG-TV Las Cruces, New Mexico, for excerpts from John Valadez's interview on the program Fronteras. The featured music for this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions on the Free Music Archive. The Yaqui drumming audio is from the Pascola Yaqui tribe in collaboration with the Superior Technological Institute of Cajeme in Sonora, Mexico. The Corrido of Joaquin Murrieta is from the public domain Roots Music website, Juneberry 78. For other links, credits, photos, and an example of Roy's artwork, see our show notes at voicesofmontereybay.org slash gray area. 
And please remember to rate and review us on iTunes and to like and share this and our other episodes. It helps more people find us. For Gray Area, I'm Julie Reynolds-Martinez. This episode was produced by me and Mara Reynolds. 